0: Welcome to Iboga Nautics, unveiling the Iboga experience for first timers and shamans alike. I'm your host, AM. Today's guest is Dr. Felix Krengel. Felix recently earned a PhD in biological sciences at the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de Mexico in Mexico City. His research interests include phytochemistry, Metabolomics and plant tissue culture, focusing particularly on the biosynthesis of monoterpenoid indole alkaloids by Mexican species of the Apocynaceae plant family. I invite Felix on the podcast to discuss his and his colleagues research into novel alkaloidal extraction and purification methods, resulting in three published papers from 2019. They are one of very few laboratories in the world, as far as I can tell, exploring the forefront of alternative sources of Ibogan type alkaloids, especially ibogaine. Felix, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So just like we're finding, or we have been finding, lots of DMT in plant life, I feel like we're also starting to find a lot of Ibogan type alkaloids. In many places as well. And your research focuses on this. But first, I'd like to set the stage. So I'd like us to talk about the botany of Ibogan alkaloid containing plants. And then we'll speak about you and your colleagues' latest contributions to the academic literature. Now, when it comes to botany, and I think this is important for people to have an idea of where these alkaloids and chemicals come from. Tabernanthi boga comes from this plant species called the Apocynaceae shrub and I didn't realize that there's actually different types of Tabernanthi boga so there's Tabernanthi boga bayon or L. nut with two t's there might be others as well and I'm assuming that Tabernanthi boga gets the most attention because it has the highest ibogaine content would you please give us a short crash course on iboga botany, specifically ibogaine alkaloid-containing plant species?
1: Well, what I'm doing, like phytochemistry, and when you're looking for, searching for a um, other plants containing a certain type of secondary metabolite, which is what we call it, like alkaloids, like ibogaine, then you first, you know, you have some there's some pre-existing information. In this case, that tabernante iboga contains uh, ibogaine, just to give that, stick to that example, right? Now, it is important to understand that all living beings have or produce primary metabolites, which basically are the, the kind of molecules that are essential to maintain life functions stuff you know you have proteins you have enzymes and yeah molecules like that but then especially plants you know an animal if um, endangered can just run or fight plants can can do that plants are at one place and they can move so in order to defend themselves they produce secondary metabolites secondary metabolites are not Necessary to maintain life functions, but they do have a, an ecological purpose. So, for example, alkaloids, many times they taste bitter. So, for example, herbivores, they wouldn't eat plants containing a decent amount of alkaloids because they taste bitter. On the other hand, alkaloids many times have a toxic effect. So, for example, a cow would eat like a young plant containing alkaloids and would get sick. So next time, the cow wouldn't eat this plant anymore. And yeah, that's basically the function of of ibogaine in the plant. But then it happens that these compounds accidentally might have psychoactive effects and cause psychoactive effects in in the human brain. And, or even have like, I don't know, I have a medical use or whatever, you know, but that's accidentally, the plant doesn't produce those compounds um, (laughs) for us to get insights or visions. It produces that compound in order to defend itself, right? Mm. And that is based on evolution. So while primary metabolites are produced by all living beings, secondary metabolites are normally restricted to uh, to plants within a genus or within a family. So Tavernanti iboga is a species, right? Mm-hmm. But there are other species of tabernante. Tabernante is the name of the genus. Iboga is the name of the species, right? So there are other species of tabernante. In Mexico, for example, we don't have this genus. We don't have the species and we don't have the genus. So you would want to look into the family, which is uh, Apocynaceae. Apocynaceae is actually the family, the plant family. So my research focused on, yeah, searching for ibogaine in the same plant species, but uh, the same plant family, sorry, but uh, other species. Then we first had to find a related genus, which is Taverna Montana. Taverna Montana is really close to, to Tavernante. And, yeah we found actually ibogaine and many other alkaloids which are structurally related like volkandian coronaridine ibogamin.
0: and are these defense metab- are the is ibogaine and the other ibogan alkaloids are they secondary metabolites so yeah. for defensive yeah, purposes yeah alkaloids
1: are always secondary metabolites again they don't have a um, life maintaining or sustaining function but they have an ecological function Just and this icoloids are are mostly they have some antioxidant function as well, but mostly they are defense compounds. Actually uh the plants I've worked with, basically they grow in the rainforest. In the rain several all, all over the rainforest in Mexico. It's not really restricted to one region. Wherever there's a tropical climate and rainforest, you find these plants. The difference between a forest and a rainforest is that in the forest, in a temperate forest or whatever, you have a certain number of dominant species. In the rainforest, you don't have that. That's why uh, rainforests have such a high biodiversity. There are a lot, a lot, a lot of different species, but each species is composed of of rather few individuals, right? So what happens is that my Taverna Montana species I've worked with If you go really deep into the rainforest into, well, you don't find that too much anymore, but into zones that still have like intact, not to say in pristine rainforest, right, then you would not encounter too much, too many Tabernay Montana plants. But what happens in Mexico, if that rainforests are cut down in order to raise cattle. And in these disturbed areas, Tabernay Montana plants are becoming or become a uh, dominant species. Why? Well, because uh, all those rainforest trees, they grow just as, uh, how to put it? <laughs> Obviously, the seeds germinate and the plant produce a plantlet, right? A small, tiny plantlet. But you have a lot of cows and, and horses, right? Because that's why they cut down the rainforest in the first place. Then the cows eat those plantlets. They eat all those plantlets. I mean, they don't distinct between uh, this species or that species. They just eat the plantlet. But as Taberna Montana plants contain these cycloids, the cow gets sick. It doesn't like it feels bad, and it tastes bitter. So next time it learns, and next time it sees those plants, it won't eat them anymore. So the only trees surviving in these disturbed areas are Taberna montana plants and other plants producing alkaloids or terpenoids or secondary metabolites. That is why a species like, yeah, from Taberna montana genus, that are normally not dominant species become species, become dominant in these disturbed areas. And so how
0: many Apocynaceae shrubs contain Ibogaine-type alkaloids?
1: Well, you who know, knows? <laughs> but, oh, uh... we don't, yeah, we don't
0: know for sure. <laughs> um, but no, the reason I ask is because I'm just looking at a list I have here, and there's multiple genuses that I found. So there's the Tabernanth, there's the Voacanga, there's Tabernay Montana, mm-hmm. there's Catharanthus. And then mm-hmm. under, for example, Tabernay Montana, you have multiple species like Arborea, Alba, right. Donnell Smithy. So right. I'm curious how many of these shrub-like plants actually contain these, let's say, desired Ibogan type alkaloids, that we know of, anyway.
1: Yeah, exactly. Again, who knows? Uh, Mexico is a hotspot for Taverna Montana species. So Mexico, the number is growing. This is something that is hard to understand for even scientists, but, you know, it's more like a taxonomist issue. So... Um, We have a certain amount of Taverna Montana species in Mexico, but then taxonomists, they would reassign a genus or a species, well, more more species to another genus from time to time. Because, you know, uh, traditionally taxonomy is based on morphological and anatomical features. But within the last decades... DNA sequencing techniques have popped out of, out of nowhere and are getting really important right now. Right, so uh, when they reevaluate the taxonomical relationships with DNA sequencing or yeah, basically genomic sequencing, then um, it turns out that many species or several species which were thought to belong to that genus really belong to another genus. That's why each year there are some plants that were traditionally considered, for example, belonging to the Stemadenia genus or the Tevetia genus, and they are reassigned to Taverna Montana genus. So uh, right now I think there are officially 18 Taverna Montana species in Mexico, and we have only worked with four which is Taverna Montana Alba, Arboria, Smithy, and Amygdalifolia. Wow. All I know is that those four species all contain Yeah, you know, we baptized it the Civi complex, which basically is an abbreviation for coronaridin, Ibogamine, uh Valkangin, and Ibogaine. So these four alkaloids are the main Secondary metabolites are the main, the majority alkaloids of all the species I've worked with, right? So it doesn't mean that the species do not contain any other alkaloids, but quantitatively speaking, those four are the most important. So the difference between the four species is not so much about the identity of the of the alkaloids they produce, but the amounts, right? The amounts in which they produce these four alkaloids. For example, Taverna Montana arborea produces a lot of work engine. It produces all the other three alkaloids too, but it mainly produces work engine in quantitative terms. And Alba can produce either high amounts of warkengin or coronaridine then we have uh, donis Smithy, which produces mainly don uh, but in rather small amounts compared to the other species and amygdalifolia produces a lot of ibogamin and coronaridine a lot and just a little bit of of Ibo- ibogaine and warkengin but then again it does not only depend on the species Basically, it depends on the species, but the region where it grows, or the microclimate, even, or even the age of the plant, you know, um, the life phase, if you want the life stage, um, may play a role too. So it really gets complicated. It can even depend on the on the season, or if the plant is maybe on the pathogens that exist in that region, and stuff. So it's really complex. You know, as these compounds are defense compounds, it really depends on, yeah, on all the pathogens attacking the plant or the ecological environmental pressures. It The plant is subjected to, it might depend on the soil, if it's a soily soil, soil or if... Uh, or well,
0: like sandy or clay. Yeah, or, exactly. The nutrients
1: yeah. in the soil and all this stuff. Then again, the life stage of of the plant. So it's really, really complex. I mean, you could do research on that for one hundred years, and probably you would not get to a definite conclusion about all the factors that play. So I'll just rep- it.
0: I'll just repeat what you said for listeners. You said the CIVI complex, that's C-I-V-I, and that's a term that you and your team introduced into the literature, which is right. stands for coroneridine, ibogamine, voacangine, and ibogaine. Yes. There's a question I forgot to ask Surajit Sinha, uh, Sinha in one of the episodes this season. I'm curious, what are the top 10 ibogaine alkaloids in terms of their frequency and importance. Well, I suppose importance would be more, I, I'm thinking off the top of my head, addiction interruption, but like what are the top 10 Ibogan alkaloids that are most commonly found in these plants?
1: Well, again, I think, well, obviously the most Important compound would be ibogaine, but it's just because it's the most researched anti-addictive alkaloid of that type, right? We don't really have information about the anti-addictive potential of all the other alkaloids. There's some, I think there's a study from the 1990s from Stanley Glick, I guess indicating that ebogamin might actually have a, might be more efficient in terms of anti-addictive potential than ibogaine. And it might even be just a bit safer because it doesn't have the methoxy group. And, you know, it's like a structure effect relationships. But the only Ibogaine-type alkaloid that has exhaustively been, in, well, at least to some degree, being investigated for its anti-addictive potential is Ibogaine. Now, the most common alkaloid in Taverna, Montana at least, is Waukang. It's just like in voacanga Africana. You know that most Ibogaine available on the global market right now is being is produced semi-synthetically from wakanga Africana. So what they do is they extract the Waukangian from wakanga Africana and they convert it to Ibogaine. Now with most uh, Taverna Montana species, it's similar. Most of them produce Waukangian. And just a few seem to produce Ibogaine in decent amount and then there are some species that would produce more of coronaridine and ibogamine coronaridin is may is basically warcanjin but it doesn't have a methoxy group and ibogamine is basically ibogaine but it doesn't have a yeah it doesn't have the methoxy group mm-hmm.
0: one of the key points i took away after reading some of dr chris jenks's research texts compared to your texts was that Your method involves testing the testing of many different solvents. Jenks claims that his techniques are simple and efficient, and they look, they seem to be. For example, using common household items and lab equipment that you can buy pretty much anywhere. How is your extraction method simpler and more efficient than, say, compared to Jenks's method? Is it like perhaps because of the solvents that you're experimenting with or? Like, would you briefly summarize this this simplicity and efficiency of uh, your techniques?
1: Well, basically, we took a different approach. We basically, we did an extraction study, and we actually uh, compared Jeng's method to uh, other methods, right? So we tested a, a series of, of solvents just to figure out which one was m- yeah was more effective or most effective and we did try jeng's method so at least in our study it turned out that jeng's method is highly efficient for extracting ibogaine but not so much for wakenrune even less so for coronaridin, i guess yeah maybe ibogamin. Yeah, it turned out that, at least in our study, methanol turned out to be the most efficient solvent. But methanol is own is also a, a highly toxic solvent. So, you know, it's not something you should do in your basement. <laughs> mm. So in industry, for example, like, I don't know, like herbal remedy-based Industry, you would probably use ethanol, which is just drinking alcohol, right? Or if you used methanol, you would want to make sure that you really uh, evaporate all of it, right? For approved FDA, approved herbal remedies, or whatever, you might get into trouble if you produced. Herbal medicine with uh, with methanol, even if it just contained trace amounts, it, yeah, it might be a limitation for us.
0: Is it toxic to the human being? Yeah, methanol in is, small is, amounts is,
1: is very toxic. Yeah, it's like the, the, the yeah the classic is, example is like moonshine, you know, like mm, illegally right. produced alkaloid. Some people die from time to time, and if they die, it's almost always because their alkaloid contains small amounts of methanol.
0: And they go blind as well, right? Yeah. I think that's where the term blind drunk comes from. Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. Now, again, if you extract with methanol, it doesn't – in real life, it might not be that dangerous because you evaporate it anyways, you know? so you in the worst case you will have trace amount in your extract but regulations or laws states that sanitary laws or whatever you might might pull out a product just because it contains tiny amount of anything you know even in the food industry you're only allowed to add specific m- amounts of additives or
0: but then, does this mean that your technique cannot be used to produce, to extract and purify um, Ibogan type alkaloids because you use the methanol solvent?
1: No, no, no. You, you could use it, but if you did it like commercially or whatever, you were aiming to commercialize the product. Yeah, you would have to set up a a real and, you know, take all the safety measures in order to make sure that there are no trace amount of methanol contained. And you would probably have to do the chemical analysis and get the certification. And just as, I don't know, if you produce chocolate bars, you know, you have to present a certificate that everything is in order, right? And that the additives you add are within reasonable limits or as stated by law. So you could do that. But again, it's not really my method because we compared several methods, right? Methanol just turned out to be the most efficient solvent. But it doesn't mean you couldn't use Jenk's method, for example. It only means that, well, we did... Three extractions, three extraction cycles, and you get most of the alkaloids out of it with uh, using methanol. But then again, if you use Jenks method, you would probably have to extract five times or six times instead of three. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. you would eventually end up with a very similar amount of of active compounds. But yeah, you would have to repeat cycles, basically.
0: Speaking of active compounds, a point you brought up in your papers. I can't remember which exactly which one it was. Maybe it was in two or two of them. You speak about the inner and outer root bark of the plant. And I think you referenced Dickinson's one of Dickinson's articles. What you're claiming essentially is that not all root bark is equal. So I'm assuming that there's maybe higher concentrations of certain alkaloids in the outer root bark, and then there's different concentrations in the inner root bark. Would you tell us what you found out regarding inner and outer root bark and why it could be significant to extraction and purification?
1: Right. What we found out is that inner root bark would contain, in the case of Taverna Montana arborea, for example, which produces mainly work but also some ibogaine. That, um, well, if you sample the whole bark, you would get exactly that. A lot of work engine and just a little bit of ibogaine. But if you then separate it inner from outer root bark, you would find a lot of work engine, almost, uh, uh, not. Almost pure Ibogaine, but you would find like, I don't know, 80-90% of the alkaloids in the inner root bark are Ibogaine. And you would then sample the outer root bark and you would have a much higher amount of ib- Ibogaine. You would still found more work engine than Ibogaine, but it would be comparable, right? So you would have roughly the same amount of Ibogaine than, than Ibogaine in the outer root bark. Now that makes sense because the inner root bark is closer to the medulla, to the to the inner part of the of the stem, if you want. And why, why does that
0: make sense? I'm
1: that makes sense because the plant grows from the inside. Uh,
0: inside I mean? out, right.
1: Yeah inside out. Exactly. So um, the new tissue would be on the inside and the mature tissue would be on the outside. Now, ibogaine is biosynthetically speaking a more advanced alkaloid than valkensin. Why? Because valkensin is ibogaine, but it has an additional ester group. That's the only difference. Valkensin has an additional ester group which ibuprofen lacks. So what the plant does is to produce an enzyme that cleaves the ester group. It eliminates the, the ester group, right? But that's an additional step, which takes place in space and time. So in order to produce that enzyme, the plant has to mature. And that is why, the more mature tissue contains more ibogaine than the, uh, the younger uh,
0: then, tissue. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just for a clarification question, how thick exactly is the root bark? I suppose it depends from the age of the plant. But let's say, I don't know. A five-year, a ten-year, a twenty-year plant, how thick would that root bark actually be? I'm curious when they're, for example, when the Buiti are shaving the root bark off of the root, how thick is that? Yeah, or, or, for example, Tabernay Montana?
1: It depends. It depends as what well. For Tabernay Montana Arborea, for example, most Apocynaceae species, uh, you could call them a big... Shrub or small tree, right? That's the first thing. Now, Taberna Montana arborea. Arborea means like tree-like. So, uh, it's more akin to a tree. It can grow really high. I don't know, maybe 15 meters, something like that. So it gets really high. So if you harvest root bark from a mature tree, it's thick thick and you can separate the inner layer from the outer layer. But if it's a young tree, the root bark might be really thin and you may not be able to separate the layers. Then again, you have other species. For example, Taverna montana alba is more like a shrub. It grows maybe to two meters, three meters max. It doesn't grow more doesn't grow higher. So even in mature trees, you would have a, ra- a rather thin bark, which is hard to separate into layers. Now, tavernanti tabernan- Iboga is a shrub too. So I have not seen like whole bark of tavernanti Iboga. I don't know how thick it is, but I would guess it's more akin to Taberna Montana Alba, so rather thin. Then when you take wakanga africana, wakanga africana is a tree. It's more akin to a tree. So again, it would have at least mature plants would have like thick bark. That's but basically th- it.
0: Yeah. How thick? How thin? Like uh, a few centimeters
1: or? Yeah, it depends on Taberna, Montana, Alba. It would be just a few centimeters. I don't know. Maybe maybe half a centimeter the most. Hmm. And in Taverna Montana Arboria in mature trees maybe one to two centimeter thick.
0: I suppose that it also depends upon where in the root system, right? So uh, the, the width of the mm-hmm. root bark would be different from uh, I guess the closer it is to the trunk than it is Right. Uh, right. further out right exactly. so would it be th- would it be thicker near the trunk because it's more yeah m- yeah.
1: Sure. Yeah. Right. yeah definitely definitely it's like uh, it's basically it's according to the diameter of the root so in again in taberna montana alba for example we've dug out roots and the root the whole root i mean the root consists mainly of medulla which does not contain any alkaloids so the the bark really makes up like a small part of, of, of the whole root, right? So in Taverna Montana Alba, I don't know, the diameter of the thickest root, maybe five centimeters or maybe a bit more, but in Taverna Montana Arborea, in mature trees, oh, I can just guess, maybe it would be half a meter or stuff. You the thickest root, so it's really hard to cut those roots. It takes may take an hour just to cut one root. You know.
0: Well, first you have to dig it up, right? And then
1: you, you have to cut ants, it. You know, because uh, ants like to form uh, uh, symbiosis with uh, with tarania montana plants, and you in I mean, those are the big ants of the rainforest. So you dig it out, and then the ants are are just, I don't know what they think, right? It's just like they're getting attacked. (laughs) So they get out, they crawl up your legs, and they bite you anywhere. So,
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yang Guignon said that ants play a role in the production of alkaloids in Tabernanthi Boga. I'm not sure if we know what their role is, but they seem to be... I don't know, shuffling something there or something away from the root. Um, I'm not sure. Do you know if the buiti differentiate between the inner and outer root barks? Or do they just put all the root bark together in the same pile?
1: I don't know, because I'm not really a specialist about for Tavernanti Iboga, and the African plants. But as far as I know, they don't. But I'm not sure, and I'm not sure how thick Iboga root bark grows. So it may have to do with, if my hypothesis is right, that, well, Tavernante Iboga is more akin to Taverna Montana Alba, then it might just be a question about the thickness of the root bark. Maybe it's just not thick enough in order to Distinguish between uh, the different layers of, of root bark, but I'm I don't really know that. Maybe somebody who is more an expert about Tavenantiivogal could confirm or, or refute that.
0: Okay, so I have a two-part question coming up, but before I get to that, I forgot to ask Chris Jenks in the previous episode about how in reducing the root bark to total alkaloid extract, what is it in the vinegar or the ammonia that dissolves the wood product? Or are, am I just ignorant? Like, does vinegar and or ammonia dissolve wood?
1: No, 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 no. no so how does that process take place? It's different. It's like <clears throat> uh, the first step, alkaloids are very, chemically speaking, very special Secondary metabolites, which is why you can purify them to a reasonable degree easily by applying an acid-base extraction. So, what does that mean? Well, first, you would uh, make an acidic extraction. For example, uh, yeah, vinegar is basically acetic acid, right? So, you would lower pH you would apply an acidic pH, which uh, ranges from 0 to 7, more or less. 7 is a neutral pH. Acidic pH means there's an excess of protons. You know? Now, those protons, the the alkaloids accept that proton, and uh, they acquire a positive charge. The net charge of the alkaloid is positive. We talk about polar compounds. Now, like dissolves like. What do I mean by that? Water, for example, is a polar solvent, you know, because it is composed of, uh, of oxygen, which has a negative charge, and hydrogen, two hydrogens, which have a positive charge. So one part of the molecule has a negative charge. The other part has a positive charge. That makes it polar. It has this different in charge. Uh, the alkaloids, in its protonated form are also polar. So this is why they dissolve in water or an acid. So it doesn't have anything to do with the wood. The wood doesn't dissolve. It just liberates the alkaloids, which now get dissolved into the solvent. You wouldn't want the wood to be dissolved because you wouldn't separate the metabolites from the plant material, right?
0: Oh, I see. I get it. The,
1: now, acid, yeah. the acid does help a little bit in breaking down the cells, the plant cells. And as the alkaloids are contained within the cells, uh, they are now liberated. They're liberated to the Environment or to the solvent, and they dissolve into the water molecules into the in, into the solvent, which can be water or, as uh, in my extraction studies, methanol. Methanol is a rather um, polar solvent too. Now you dissolve it in the in, in water, in this case, and then you basify it. That's the ammonia. The ammonia is not an acid; it's the contrary. It's a base meaning that now you make the pH alkaline or basic. So now it's not, it doesn't, if the acidic pH, I don't know, has a value of 0 to 4, now you raise the pH to at least 9, maybe 11. So now it's very basic. A basic pH means that There's an excess of hydroxyl uh, ions. So you don't have that many protons, free protons anymore, but you have, like chemically speaking, also the contrary. So you have now hydroxyl ions that capture or hmm, bind the free hydrogen ions and form water. You know, they form water. But that causes the alkaloids to lose a hydrogen atom and the alkaloids now acquire a neutral charge, meaning they're not they don't dissolve anymore in water because now the alkaloids are nonpolar, or at least they are not that polar anymore. Why the water is still polar, you know? So now the alkaloids precipitate out. While all the other stuff stays in the water. So that's mm. another separation or purification step. You can now filter the water and recover the, the powder that is a precipitate, which is maybe 50% alkaloids or more. Mm-hmm. So your starting material was a bark, but you end up with a rather, well, Reasonably pure alkaloid extract, which contains all the alkaloids. It's not pure ibogaine, but it's at least 50% alkaloids. So this is what's called the TA, the total alkaloid extract. Excellent. And then Thank you, you can further purify it. Yeah. But it's all about polarity. It's all about polarity. Like, dissolves like, like polar compounds dissolve in polar Solvents and non polar compounds dissolve in non polar solvents.
0: Okay, thank you for the clarification. Now, about minor alkaloids, I'm very curious about these minor alkaloids. One could call them unwanted alkaloids. Um, You mentioned in one of your papers that there was a Tabernanthi Boga sample outlier that contained, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but Imalicine, reserpine, and yohimbine alkaloids, and that you eliminated them from the raw data. Yeah. How do you separate these unwanted alkaloids from desired ibogan type alkaloids? Oh
1: no, it's a, that's a completely different thing. It was fake iboga. <laughs> it was fake, fake iboga. iboga. Yeah, yeah. What do you it, mean, fake another, iboga? What happens a lot, and actually, people really. Living in Africa and knowing about that, that have confirmed that to me, that uh, since iboga has raised so much interest in, well, from people who do not live in Africa, like for research interest, for recreative purposes, for anti addiction treatments, that tawenanti iboga is, I don't know if it's if you could call it an endangered species, but there's Certainly, a lot of ecological uh, pressure on that plant, based on overexploitation of for for of the species for commercial purposes, causing people to sell fake iboga. So they would just take another plant they know is that is active and psychoactive. May, well, uh, yeah, that. Has effects that are not really similar to Iboga, but at least they have an effect. You know what I mean? <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's not like it doesn't do anything. You take this plant and you get a uh, biological response or psychoactive response, if you want so. But these species contain alkaloids that are structurally related to Ibogaine. But they have a different activity, different uh, biological activity. They don't produce the visions ibogaine produces and they are much more toxic. You can easily die from several of these alkaloids and plants. Reserpin is a, is a good example because those have a, much more pronounced effect on the heart and a cardiologic uh, effect. So what we figured is that this specific so-called Iboga sample did not show a typical alkaloid profile identified with uh, Iboga, right? So we looked up in the database of the of the chemical library and we looked into some already published papers and it turned out that these uh, this sample very likely belonged to another species. And it was bought, I think, on a market in Cameroon, something like that. So, yeah, you can be pretty sure that it was fake iboga. They just saw it as iboga. I don't know if they knew about it. And just sold it anyways, or you know, if they bought the sample themselves and believing that it was iboga, but it's not. It's yeah, it's fraud.
0: And it and they don't have the same ibogamine skeletal structure, correct?
1: It has the same basic skeleton, but only to some degree, you know, and just one functional group can change the whole uh, biological uh, biologic ef- uh, activity now these plants they are not even they are also monoterpenoid indole so they belong to the same main class if you want but they are not the same subtype they are not ibogon type alkaloids mm-hmm. you know so they have a very different effect they are not that psychoactive and are much more cardiotoxic. Some it's of other... is actually dangerous because if you took those, if you don't know about this and you take a dose you normally take, I don't know, Iboga, you could easily die or at least get into serious trouble.
0: Yeah, I wish there was a laboratory that would, just like at uh, raves or festivals, you can get certain drugs tested for free and anonymously. It'd be great if there was, I don't know, some sort of laboratory you could send in a small sample of uh, whatever yeah. Ibogaine product or Iboga product you bought and get it tested so you know what's in it. Some of the other minor alkaloids that you found, and I'm assuming not all of these are Ibogan type, but you found, I'll just repeat the three that I mentioned before, Imolacine, reserpine. Yohimbine, Vobacine, Aparacine, 10-hydroxycoronaridine, beta-hydroxyquebracamine, quebracamine, and ibogaline. For me, I'm very much interested in how these iboga alkaloids elicit the visionary experience, like almost like pulling levers in a brain, in the brain, right? What role might these auxiliary alkaloids have regarding the visionary experience
1: well first of all of all the the compounds you just named only coronaridin and iboggan are ibogon type alkaloids all the other alkaloids are stuff you don't want right it's they are monoterpenoid terpenoid alkaloids but they're not of the Ibogon type so they have a again a quite different they cause different effects which are it depends on the compound but in many cases they are much more toxic and they are not psychoactive or at least not to the same degree so you really want ibogaine type alkaloids to start with then if we are talking about anti-addictive ibogaine type alkaloids you well at least With the Taverna Montana species I've worked with, you would be talking about Ibogaine, Valkensin, Ibogamine, and Coronaridine. These compounds also occur in Tavernante Iboga. So if we are speaking, and, and ibogaline, I haven't found ibogaline in any Taverna Montana species. So ibogaline seems to be a very specific compound that only occurs in Tavernante species, at least as far as, as we know at this time, right?
0: And it is psychoactive because I've heard Chris Jenks yeah. say that he took some yeah. and it was.
1: yeah yeah Yeah, exactly. But... Uh, it's only that, like, <laughs> you know, like uh, what we call an oral communication in papers and stuff. It's not really citable. So um, there's really no research on that. There's only the study I from Stanley Glick I already mentioned that examined, uh, evaluated the anti-addictive effect of ebogamin and coronaridine in rats or mice, I think rats. And it at least in that study, both coronaridin and ibogamin turned out to have a greater anti-addictive effect than ibogaine. But then again, you can't just take findings from an animal study and extrapolate it to humans, you know and this is just the anti-addictive effect which is measurable but if you talk about the psychoactive or visionary effects how can you tell what the animal is is feeling you know <laughs> or yeah, if it's impossible. hallucinating or <laughs> you just can't tell so you would really have to do human studies in order to to see the the real uh, yeah visionary potential of these auxiliary uh, alkaloids. What you can do is assess the anti-addictive potential in, in animal studies. But
0: I have a question here that I've asked some other guests on the podcast, and it's related to what you report in your papers regarding feeding deterrence and actually luminosity, which I was pretty surprised by. So these Tabernay-Montana species have the secondary metabolite-rich latex, which acts as a feeding deterrent for cattle, and also some special uh, uh, plant hormones, defense mechanisms against herbivores, as you mentioned, for example, salicylic acid and yasmonic acid. But then this idea of light or lux, how light is measured, and you cite Hooft and colleagues' papers from 1996 and 1998, and they report that monoterpenoid indole alkaloid production is inhibited by roughly 65,000 looks or more. What I did not find in their papers was – because I needed something to gauge, like, what is 65,000 looks. That's just a number for me. Right. And so I found another paper that said um, – Sunlight can be as bright as 100,000 lux. Okay, so if iboga root is underground, sort of like hiding itself, and it has hormone or metabolite defense mechanisms, and further ibogan alkaloids do not produce in high levels of sunlight, is this a sign that we should not be consuming this plant?
1: Uh, no, no. Again, first, first of all, there are several aspects to consider.
0: excellent fighting. First of yeah.
1: all, when what you were talking about is a review I wrote about uh, plant tissue culture, which is very different to what happens in real life, or at least in the in field-grown plants or wild plants, because in plant tissue culture we isolate cells or plant tissue. That's why I call it that way. And we grow it. We grow it just as a human cancer cell line or a tumor, right? It's, it's just like a accumulation of, of plant cells. It doesn't resemble a plant. It's more like a tumor. So um, it's not the same. You can... St- study some cellular cellular aspects of biosynthesis of these alkaloids and plant tissue culture models. Actually, that's a very, very nice way to observe cellular uh, processes. But in the whole plant, and especially if it grows in, in complex environment, in the rainforest or wherever, it's much different because there are so many factors to consider, Uh, so many interactions, you know, ecological interactions. And in plant tissue culture, you take all those variables out because you want to observe a certain detail or a certain interaction. So you take the variables out to control it, right, to control the conditions and say, okay, I don't have to worry about pathogens, I don't have to worry about, uh, I don't know, uh, different light intensities during the day or during the season or whatever. And then it's in sterile conditions, so, well, it's just the plant cells and the nutrients and nothing more. And those cells are exposed, right? They're directly exposed to the light, and a oh, that's a good real, point. A whole, yeah. yeah, a whole plant. Well, okay, it is also exposed to the light, but it's just the outer part of the plant. As you said, Alkaloids might produce beneath the earth, so there's no daylight. Or even if it's in the aerial parts of the plant, they are within the, the leaf, for example. So the leaf is exposed to the… Of the,
0: uh, the shade, of the all the leaves, right? Yeah, well, or
1: the leaf may be exposed to, to light, right, directly, but it's just the outer part of the leaf. The whole inner part where all the magic is occurring, right, or the biochemistry, it is not exposed directly to the light because it has all the, the cuticle and, yeah, you know what I mean. It's, it's, it's a complex structure. So it's just the superficial side that is exposed to the light. And, on the other hand, you do need light to some degree because uh synthesis is driven like like everything by photosynthesis, so if the plant actually it is hard to produce alcolooid in plant tissue cultures if they are grown in darkness because the metabolism might not be activated to to a degree that's necessary in order to start biosynthesis of, of, of secondary metabolites, it's more mm. about that. And you have many other factors. For example, in in vitro or plant tissue cultures, you don't have enri- environmental st- uh, stress. So, as I, that's basically the main limitation. In, and I think this is why I didn't succeed in producing. Ibogaine type alkaloids in vitro, because as I mentioned before, these alkaloids are defense compounds. Um, so if you don't have any environmental stress, you don't have pathogens, you don't have I don't know, oxidating activity, oxidative activity, and and so on. Then the for the plant there's no need to produce alkaloids. It can grow or for the plant, for the, for the plant cells, right? For the tumor, if you want so. There's no need because it's happy. It gets all the nutrients it, it, it needs. It gets the light it needs. It, uh, it is perfectly protected from any damaging factors. So it doesn't produce alkaloids because it says, hey, why? I'm fine. Why should I spend energy on producing compounds that I don't need? at this moment. So basically what you do in plant tissue culture, you then stress the plants, you know, with uh, different techniques. You may add uh, signaling molecules that induce the production of, alkaloid production, or you even may, uh, just like a vaccine, like you you even may uh, put or add uh, Parts of pathogenic mushrooms or pathogenic bacteria or whatever, not the living organism, but proteins from those pathogens to the cultures. Then the plant, just like our immune system, like in vaccines, right? The immune system of, or the plant detects those proteins from a potential pathogen and it starts, now it starts to produce alkaloids because it thinks it's being attacked by a pathogen. Mm -hmm. So that's a tricky part about uh, plant tissue culture. No, good observations. Yeah, you don't have that problems with plants growing in the field because they are naturally exposed to all kinds of of environmental factors.
0: Yeah, one of the problems of isolating in the laboratory rather than Observing and testing within the natural environment slash biome. Now, with Iboga, or sorry, well, mostly let's talk about Tabernanth Iboga mainly because that's the plant that gets all the attention. And some people believe that it's under threat of extinction, probably is. There's high demand for Ibogaine. I always try and find the silver lining in everything. And as I'm thinking about the increased demand for this chemical and also the increased price that comes along with it, because I've heard that uh, prices for Iboga products have skyrocketed in the last one, two, three decades, um, it reminded me of the oil industry. And back in the day, we would just pump oil and that was fine. We just pump it from the ground. But as the price of oil became so expensive it became economically viable to do uh, offshore exploration for oil fields you know it it was actually worth the time and effort and money to build these what do you call them oil rigs and so i'm wondering with that example in mind regarding your current and future research is is it just right timing now because it's economically viable like let me rephrase my question is it economically viable now to produce ibogan type alkaloids in the in the laboratory from non tabernanthiboga species such as Tabernay montana because the price it's now viable it's economically viable
1: yeah Definitely. Actually, as I mentioned before, the most pure Ibogaine right now available on the market is being produced from Wakanga Africana, just produced from Wakandran, right? They extract the Wakandran from Wakanga and then they convert it to Ibogaine. That's where most Ibogaine, pure Ibogaine comes from. And then there's more like a niche market for a demand for real Tavernante Iboga TA, right? But uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think it would be. I think plants like Taverna Montana species have a huge potential for producing semi synthetic ibogaine. especially because in Mexico they're, at least the species I've worked with, they're not endangered species. Actually, local farmers over there, they consider it a uh, plaque because they grow widely all over the place. So if you go there and ask them for permission to harvest a plant or even not, I mean, we avoid killing the plant, we just harvest roots or bark or whatever and just take as much as the plant can as the plant can take, you know, in order not to kill the plant and then it recovers. But uh, local farmers would even say, hey just rip it out. We don't care, it's a plaque. There's a lot of it. So that's a that's an advantage about Taverna Montana plants. And the analogy in, in, in Africa is Wakanga Africana because they're actually producing most ibogaine uh, from wakanga africana because there are a lot of plantations of wakanga africana, but there are no plantations of Tavernanti iboga. On the other hand, I'm referring to chemically pure ibogaine because I think there will always be a market or a demand for authentic iboga extracts, you know? Mm-hmm. So some people will always prefer to take a, an original Tavernante iboga TA than taking, I don't know, a similar extract obtained from, from another plant. It may be similar, but it's not the same.
0: So but I think we can safely say that this research, uh, I, I can't speak for you, but a lot of this Voacanga research or let's say ibogaine extraction from Voacanga species, and your research with tabernay Montana might not have happened if the price of the naturally boga products didn't go up in the first place. Would that be yeah, a well, fair well, assessment?
1: My research was independent from. Uh, did nothing have to do with uh, commercial reasons or that. It was just scientific interest, right? Mm -hmm. It's more, at least when I started it, it was more like basic scientific research just to gain knowledge about the biosynthesis and about other plants containing the same or similar alkaloids. But the commercial use of Wakanga Africana would definitely not have happened if it wasn't for, yeah, Tawenante Iboga being endangered and uh, yeah, prices going up. Mm-hmm. I think that is for for sure, yeah. Because if not, it would just be easier to produce ibogaine from iboga, right?
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Even another way would be, I think in Gabon, there are now some efforts to establish uh, plantations of Iboga, like in a similar way as it is already done with, or has been done with Wakanga Africana. So that might be an alternative. And in the long run, prices might go down again if if they really succeeded in establishing a a whole system like that because it's easy to say right and it's easy to get some funding and it's easy to start but we are talking about i don't know thousands or hundreds of thousands of plants right? that have to to be grown and maintained and yeah
0: i know there are private plantations yeah. it's not in the mm-hmm. public domain mm-hmm. Uh, There are, and that's Jan and his work mostly work, Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, Jan and his team mostly work in the public domain. So it is sort of being privatized to some level, but then it's the independent, it's the private farmers that benefit and uh, only them.
1: Right, right.
0: I have a couple remaining questions about future research, actually. Now, in one of your articles, you say, although the last year's have seen important advances with respect to the elucidation of the Ibogan-type alkaloid pathway, many enzymes that give rise to the larger number of monoterpenoid indole alkaloids downstream from strictosidine remain unknown. What further advances do you think we could make if we knew these downstream systems?
1: Well, at least this information is outdated now, because oh, there was okay. a, yeah, there was an, I, I don't remember if it was 2018 or 2019, but there is a publication from, the guy's name is Scott Farrow, I guess. He's working with Sarah O'Connor, and I don't know, in British University. And they describe Tabernanti Iboga transcriptomically in that study. So now we do know the whole biosynthetic pathway of Ibogaine that has been described for Tavernante iboga. It has not been described for Taverna Montana species, but it is supposed to be very uh, similar. So this opens up like huge possibilities. For example, in Taverna Montana arborea, uh, which basically produces, mostly produces work engine, you could insert the genes coding for the enzyme that converts vorkensin to ibogaine. So if you succeeded in doing that, you could actually produce plants, Taberna montana arborea plants, that now convert all the engine naturally without having to apply semi-synthetic techniques in the lab. You could produce plants that do that directly in a natural process. So you wouldn't end up with the same plant species, but now producing a lot of ibogaine instead of engine Or if you wanted ibogamen, if you wanted the plant to produce a mostly ibogamine, you could just overexpress the enzymes uh, responsible for converting coronaridin to ibogamine. Plus, you might even succeed in overexpressing in Tabernantiboga iboga the enzymes that give rise to ibogaine. So uh, tabernante iboga already produces a lot of ibogaine, but now it could produce even more in genetically modified organisms right and another possibility that i don't see that feasible at this moment but if theoretically possible would be to express the whole biosynthetic pathway in uh, yeast for example like they do with insulin and stuff like that right it's has been produced for decades now in, in yeast cells or in bacteria. Well, bacteria, m- maybe not, because the cells are, are different from plant cells. But, um, yeah, you could definitely produce it by plant tissue cultures, genetically modified uh, plant cells on yeast or organisms like that. So you would not need the plant anymore. You would just take the biosynthetic machinery of the plant and you would insert it into another organism this organism if we are talking about plant or yeast cells you could grow them in bulk in, in bioreactors and then directly harvest the alkaloids so the potential is unlimited but when it comes to feasibility I don't know how realistic that would be at the moment because you also have to consider costs. I think it's still much cheaper and economically reasonable to to grow the plants.
0: Okay, so you anticipated my next question which is about genetic engineering. The way I conceptualize genetic engineering is by changing the DNA structure of a of the entire plant basically or not the entire plant but specific parts of that DNA structure, and then planting it. Um, I have a quote here, but I think you more or less described aspects of genetic engineering. Is, is that something we want to mess around with? You know, like, what are the implications to human health and nature downstream by?
1: I mean, I'm not against genetic modification. Because, you know, when it comes to that question, you're either against it or (laughs) you're with it, right? But mm, I'm not against it. I think it can be helpful in many ways, even producing food crops or whatever, right? Because we have serious environmental problems and genetic modification might help to find a way out of that situation. But what I think would be very important is to make sure that those genetically modified plants don't get introduced into the wild or even right. into agricultural. It's, it's like a little bit of systems. It's like a little bit like what happened and I, I remember a case, like a famous case from uh, Canada I guess, where a corn farmer or something like that. I think he was growing corn. I don't know. Some of his neighbor farmers or whatever bought uh, Monsanto corn seeds and they would plant this modified corn and then just, you know, the pollen, it was just dispersed by the wind and it would finally land on on the not genetically modified plants of the farmer of the canadian farmer and then uh, suddenly monsanto would show up and say hey you owe us a bunch of money because you're growing our seeds and you haven't paid for it and he was yeah but (laughs) it was not my fault you have to take Ah. care that your (laughs) i heard about
0: this
1: (laughs) you know and that is that is even like an agricultural system it's not like wild plants right so, in an intact ecosystem, I consider that highly dangerous, even because you know we humans tend to modify plants according to our needs, but it's not natural not necessarily the needs of the plant. So we might modify a plant in order to get a obtain a better yield of, in this case, the alkaloids. But it might also represent an environmental or ecological disadvantage to the plant. And it might even extinct because it, I don't know, it now cannot keep up with other life functions that are important to for the survival of the plant species, right?
0: Yeah, I think it's something to take into consideration as we... As we move into the future and as we discover more about biology and uh, genetic modification, yeah. I'm very curious. Why,
1: why I think that if you modify genetically, it might be a good idea to go the whole way and yeah, try to produce the compounds in yeast, for example. Because yeast, you would have just have the yeast says you would control them in, in, in laboratory Conditions and you would have them in a bioreactor and just like that, or maybe plant tissue culture, right? But as soon as you grow the whole plant and you transfer to outdoor conditions, it's really hard to make sure it does not contaminate natural populations
0: and potentially extinct them, I suppose.
1: Extinct them or just change the genetic makeup you know mm. it's also an ethical issue if you want to replace maybe not a species but a natural variety by a human-made <laughs> variety or whatever it's i mean it's it's a whole this really transcends ibogaine production i mean now with crispr we have this uh discussion all over the the world, right? The European Mm -hmm. Union, I guess, was just stated that CRISPR-Cas is genetic modifications, while many, Monsanto, for example, says it's not, because you cannot distinct between a natural plant, natural-grown plant, and a plant that has been modified uh, with this technique, CRISPR-Cas. So, yeah. yeah
0: you can't distinguish phenotypically, but exactly. I mean, I'm sure if you take a look at the DNA, you probably find
1: no, no, no. That's a point. You you can't you can distinguish phenotypically, but what they argument is that uh, genetic modification it leaves something in the DNA. It leaves some uh, markers that are not found in traditionally. Produced plants by plant breeders or whatever, you know, but then the companies argue that right now, for example, most uh, new food crop varieties or whatever are produced by uh, by mutation too. So they would just expose uh, the plant cells to X rays, for example, and then screen the plants for mutations. But it's arbitrary, right? So you don't know what kind of mutation you cause. So even if you obtain a favorable result, you many other part of the DNA might have mutated too. While with CRISPR-Cas you can do it like punctually, but there are no markers in it. Of course, you changed the DNA. You inserted like or you deleted a certain. Sequence or you inserted a certain gene, okay. But you, if you don't know, you couldn't tell if that was because of natural mutation or because you use CRISPR Cas. The technique just doesn't leave any markers.
0: Interesting, Felix. Our topic today was about Ibogan type alkaloid plant species, particularly from your research tabernay montana species or sorry genus also about minor alkaloids and some future concerns about research and the progress we're making in this field what takeaway messages would you like people to remember from our conversation today
1: basically that uh, science is complicated <laughs> 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 and <laughs> this topic is no exception so I think ibogaine is a, and, and related alkaloids are very important uh, compounds that hold great potential, not only with regard to anti addictive treatments, but also, uh, yeah, you know, I don't know, for human consciousness or for mm, maybe changing the way we we treat nature but um i think there's no one size fits it all solution so i think right now many good things are happening and i really think it's not about uh, should we go with iboga should we go with wakanga should we go with taverna montana should we go with genetic engineering should we go with uh traditional plant breeding or even exploitation of uh, wild populations of any plant, but rather are considering all those, these approaches and I don't know, using them to to find a solution to to the problems we we face as, as humanity as a whole at this point, so I think the next mm. years will, will see great advances and progress in that field. And yeah, many exciting things are happening. So let's see what.
0: Felix, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and explaining these difficult topics. And for, I mean, I'm a layperson when it comes to biology and chemistry. So I just want to say thank you once again.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: following is a disclaimer pertaining to the use of the Ebogonautics podcast. Ebogonautics is a podcast intended for entertainment purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional legal or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider or legal counsel with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or legal situation. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. Neither Ebogonautics nor any of its affiliates, sponsors, producers, guests, or hosts encourage the illegal use of controlled substances.